On this episode of That's My Story Period, I talk with Dr. Jessica Barnack-Tevlaris, an associate professor in the Department of Psychology at the College of New Jersey. She conducts research on attitudes towards menstruation, as well as the transition from infertility to motherhood. So today we're talking um, to Jessica Barnack-Tevlaris. She is a doctor who um, specializes in, uh, sexual health and menstrual, uh, societal beliefs. You, why don't you just talk about this, um, Jessica, and, and give us a little background of, uh, uh, what you do, um, uh, what you've been working on, and then also let us know just kind of why you got into this field. Sure. So I have my PhD in experimental health and social psychology from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. I also have a master's degree in public health and uh, focusing in epidemiology. And my research is on women's reproductive health in general, but more specifically, I focus on attitudes toward menstruation. And uh, right now I'm working on some stuff on uh, infertility and the transition from infertility to mother. Um, and what else can I tell you? Oh, my master's in public health is also from San Diego State University, and I got my master's in public health during my postdoctoral fellowship um, uh, after getting so after getting my PhD. Okay, and so what like led you to pursue like these degrees and work in this field? So as an undergraduate at SUNY Fredonia, which is about an hour west of Buffalo, I started learning about health psychology and psychology of women. And I really got interested in taking those classes. I really got interested in women's health and how it can be impacted by our attitudes and beliefs. And it really started there as an undergrad. I had a professor, Ingrid Johnston, who took me under her wing and involved me in some of her research. Research and that's where I just really got involved in uh, thinking about these issues more critically and through a scientific lens. Mm. And I, so I continued on uh, with that kind of research in my master's and, and PhD as well. Um, but I also I have a lot of you know personal experiences with reproductive health that also fueled that interest and made me really passionate about passionate about these issues. Um, I was diagnosed with endometriosis when I was 15, mm-hmm. and I um, that was a struggle because I was an adolescent, and of course, we all know how much is happening uh, during our adolescence. Uh-huh. <laughs> so to add a chronic illness on top of that, you know, was really difficult. Um, and so I knew firsthand, you know, how much your reproductive health could affect you emotionally, psychologically, socially. Um, so that also fueled, you know, like I said, some of my passion behind this research. Um, and as I um, grew older, I uh, discovered that that um, my endometriosis and uh, some of the surgeries that I had to treat it have caused some scar tissue that ended up resulting in infertility. And uh, so that also uh, has influenced some of my work in that area as well. Do you mind going into how, because we've had, I've had guests on the show talk about endometriosis, Mm -hmm. but none of them have been at the point where they've been, you know, decided to start having kids Mm -hmm. or anything like that. So 
Um, do you mind just talking a little bit about how the endometriosis and the infertility affect one another? Or, well, endometriosis affects infertility. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think it's really important first for me to say that not everyone who has endometriosis experiences infertility. Um, that uh, my case did. Um, I think because of at the time when I was diagnosed with infertility or or, sorry with endometriosis there wasn't a whole the treatments that we have today we didn't have then and so I don't think I received the kind of treatment that really would have helped preserve my fertility like I think is more possible these days um Mm so um so Yes. So not everyone who has endometriosis experiences infertility. And that's really important to say so that people don't think, well, I have endometriosis. I'll never be able to have children. Um, And there's also, as you know, we know there's a lot of scientific advances that have helped people who um, have endometriosis and other illnesses that can cause infertility Mm -hmm. to be successful in having a child. Um, Right. So, Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so basically the endometriosis uh, led to scar tissue. The surgeries that I had led to scar tissue that um, in essence closed my tubes. And um, so I was told that I would never have children without in vitro fertilization. Um, and so I experienced infertility for four years. Um, I didn't really have access to treatments in the state that I was living in when I first started trying to have children. Um, so that was a big barrier. Uh, but then when I moved to New Jersey, I did have access to those treatments and insurance coverage and those amazing things that don't exist in many states. Um, and so I was able to uh, conceive uh, twins through IVF. And I now have, um, there'll be five a week from today, actually, my twins. Um and interestingly enough, I also ended up conceiving another child without infertility treatments. Um, uh, I, I conceived her a year and a half after my twins were born. So um, it was interesting to be told that that wouldn't be possible. Um, and it became possible. Of course, that doesn't always happen for everyone either. Um, that just happened to be my situation. And so I, you know, when I got into the world of motherhood, um, I realized that um, obviously that transition is very difficult and complicated, but there's also this added layer that the previous experience of infertility um, brings to that motherhood and that experience of motherhood. And so that's what I'm studying now. And I've been interviewing women about that transition. Um, and it's been very wonderful experience to do that research. Yeah. Um, well, congratulations. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure the, you know, it's just like even menstruation, like it, the experiences run the gamut. And so mm-hmm. you really only know, or you can only really learn how to treat if we talk about it. And that's like mm-hmm. kind of part of, part of this show specifically is just, you know, trying to get more and more people to feel open to talking about it. And, mm-hmm. um, and this way there's advancements because I know too, um, I didn't, I, I mean, I don't know. I was never diagnosed with endometriosis, but I used to have terrible periods mm-hmm. as an adolescent. And one of the things that, you know, you hear from peers and you sometimes even adults is kind of like, you know, grin and bear it, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, cause you're, yeah. it's like everyone, everyone goes through it, but then there's more implications, obviously, especially in your case. And you're like, God, I wish 
I could just have been like super open and we could have figured it out at the time. But, um, um, but yeah, do you think that these attitudes, do you think that there are more people talking about it, talking about menstruation and what women go through people who menstruate go through? Do you think people are like talking more about it and attitudes are changing? Have you seen that in your research? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think this is a really great question that, and I think the answer to it depends on whether we're thinking about it anecdotally or whether we're looking at the research. So like, like you say, um, so anecdotally, I think, yes, I think we made a lot of progress. Um, but I think that we still have more to go because I haven't seen much of a change in the research on attitudes toward menstruation. Now there haven't been any studies to my knowledge that have critically compared like participants' attitudes toward menstruation across studies that have used the same measures while controlling for some of the other important variables that could impact any of those changes in attitudes. Um, But that could just mean that the cultural changes haven't had enough time to make a difference and to come out in the data. And when I say cultural changes, I mean that you know, there's been definitely more positive things about menstruation in the media. Um, you know, the menstruation graced the cover of Newsweek in 2016. Um, yep. This month, uh, the Scientific Amer- American focused on menstruation. Um, there's been all these challenges to tax on menstrual products. Um, I think it was 2000, either 15 or 16, where a woman ran a marathon while bleeding without a pad or tampon. Um, you know, there's yep. so much that has been mm-hmm. happening. You know, we made it to the Oscars. There's period podcasts, right? There's so many things that have happened <laughs> that anecdotally say, you know, we've made it. Like, you know, things are good. But um, I'd like to think that all of that matters, and I hope it does, and I hope it does translate into better attitudes. But I think we need to wait and see. I think we need more research um, to follow up and make those critical comparisons and see if there are like statistically significant differences. And I'll, I'll try to get on the case for that for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it's interesting that like, yeah, cause I'm, I, I only ever approach it anecdotally, but I'll, absolutely there should be really, you know, research data actual to support the actual anecdotal yeah. evidence, but even do you see a difference too? Is it like culturally? Is it socioeconomically? Is it all of that stuff together? Um, wh- what do you mean? Like access, you know, um, access to information and access to menstrual products, mm-hmm. period equality, essentially, um, which I know is the term that people mm-hmm. use um, in in media. Yeah, I mean, there are definitely disparities uh, when seeing, you know, who has access and knowledge and what kinds of attitudes people have toward menstruation, right? So much of our attitudes toward health are influenced by the resources that we have to cope with health. Um, so I definitely think it makes a difference and it's important to be really intersectional in talking about these attitudes and researching these attitudes. Um, and, um, and yeah, I mean, it, I think privilege helps us think about those attitudes, you know, maybe being more positive, but for people who having a period is a real struggle and it's a struggle to get tampons and it's a struggle to get pads and, you know, uh, um, 
having to make your own if you don't have access to those products, like, of course, that's going to affect attitudes. And so we need to think about how it could be positive for some people in some ways, but still, you know, really a challenge for others. Yeah. And do you do any um, international work or like or research on um, menstruation? I don't personally, but there are a lot of people really doing great work in this area. Um, there was uh, Chris Bobel in uh, at UMass Boston uh, recently published a book called "Developing Girls and Menstrual Health in the Global South." Um, so you know that was something really recent and um, is a great resource. You know, there's been a lot of researchers who are focusing on improving what is often referred to as menstrual hygiene in developing countries and trying to create real sustainable interventions. Um, And of course, creating these sustainable interventions often involves addressing the stigma around menstruation. And, you know, we see some of that in in the period end of sentence, right? Mm -hmm. They're trying to come up with a sustainable way to provide products. And uh, so much about stigma comes up in that uh, conversation and and in that process. So, so no, I'm not um, doing that work, but there are a lot of great people who are. Yes, absolutely. But I know that there's a lot of domestic, you know, um, I guess we don't think about it when you when you watch TV. We're a little bit more open about talking about it here, specifically in America. But um, I know that there's still work to be done here as well. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, so what is so on that <laughs> in your research? Do you do you have you found anything that we could do that you would start suggesting doing that we could help to try and remove this stigma as we move forward? Like you know, with the next generations. Again, like anecdotally, it does seem like you were saying that it's slowly chipping away. Um, But, you know, if there's any other or if you have any kind of like thoughts as to what we can do um, in our like everyday lives to help just continue removing that stigma. Yeah, I think it's really important to start or keep talking about it at a younger age and normalizing the discussion around menstruation, um, you know, particularly for girls. Um, We also need to start educating all genders as well, instead of, you know, splitting boys and girls into separate rooms, which, you know, they still are doing. Uh, All genders need to know about menstruation and reproductive health just in general. And um, if we can focus on that, if we can focus on providing more people with this information and normalizing the discussion, or perhaps even pointing out positives of Mm -hmm. menstruation, um, I think that can make some progress. Um, You know, menstrual or menstruation is really a vital sign and it needs to be respected like one. And I think it would be really great if menstruators could think about tracking their cycle as tracking their health or any other health behavior, like they do steps or drinking water, right? Um, And not just paying attention to the negative things like mood and pain and things like that that we're taught to pay attention to, but also potentially positive experiences. Um, We're not really taught to observe positive emotions or thoughts. And uh, if we do, we're not really taught to attribute those to our menstrual cycles. So we might, you know, have a good day. um, And it could also be, um, you know, a a day that's close to menstruation, but we're not going to think, you know, I'm having a good day. It must be because I'm getting my period, right? We're not taught to think about it that way. Um, And so if we could encourage more of that kind of awareness and observation, I think, um, 
You know, but at the same time, you know, I want to be real about this, that menstruators also need to know what is normal or within the range of normal and what is not, right? Because, uh, you know, it's very real that people experience uh, illnesses related to the menstrual cycle, like endometriosis and, uh, you know, or PCOS or fibroids. And so, you know, I personally know that menstruating can be difficult because of those illnesses. And so I certainly have an appreciation for that. And I think people need to know when to reach out to a doctor and, and all that. Um, but since we as a society talk about menstruation so negatively, like you said, we're taught to just grin and bear it, um, that when menstruators have these serious conditions, it can take years for them to reach out. And if when it's taking years for them to reach out, that problem could be progressing. Um, and I think part of why they don't reach out is because they think it's just supposed to be that bad, but it's not, right? There's there's normal and there's right. not normal um, and times where intervention is needed. So. So yeah, talking about it more, normalizing this discussion and also helping people know um, what a, a range of, of normal is and when to talk to your doctor. Yeah, um, I just want to go back to, you know, you had said um, about like them separating boys and girls, which, you know, yes, uh, that's how I had it all too. And mm-hmm. I I wonder like, what's the discussion to start changing that if it's not starting to change already? Um, do you do... Do you do any outreach? Because I know you do a lot of more research, but I didn't know if you did any educational outreach to adolescents in that way or, you know, yeah, education systems. Yeah, not yet. Um, I haven't worked directly with educators yet. Again, there are people out there doing this good research and and outreach. Um, But I think, you know, it's just like the resistance there is with sex ed, right? There is so much evidence out there that comprehensive sex education has benefits and, um, you know, provides people with the means to have safe, healthy sexual experiences um, and doesn't have the negative outcomes that that people want to believe it has, um, but there's still this resistance to it. There's still this barrier to it. And I think that just sort of goes to all of um, reproductive health and so includes menstruation and that it's, you know, we don't want to talk about it and, um, you know, parents may feel uncomfortable having their kids talk about it in school. And so I think there are real barriers. And of course, there are also a lot of things that schools are dealing with, right, beyond uh, reproductive and sexual health, right? There's safety in schools, and there's access to resources, and right, and so, and a lot of, um, people I think, uh, or teachers, I think they have a lot to, to do and to know and to, to manage. So I think it is important to provide more resources to schools so that they can make some of these things possible. Um, but yeah, I would like to see my, I would like to see my research go in, you know, more of a direction where I could take it, um, you know, into schools or um, have more of an applied focus. Yeah. I mean, we obviously, again, like the research to back any sort of changes is is incredibly helpful to be like, no, no, we've studied this. It's scientifically (laughs) proven that, that this discussion and these measures, these changes will ultimately help um, everyone 
move forward in a healthy and productive way and and especially people who menstruate and are dealing with it to not feel any sort of stigma as they move through their lives and you know it's it's because it is one of those things where as you get older it's always joked about it's like you you still kind of always feel like you know I got my period at 12 and I always kind of feel like that 12 13 year old self Mm -hmm. um you know no matter what because those kinds of psychological ideas surrounding what a period is will always stay with Mm -hmm. you um you know, because you you get them kind of imprinted on you so young, mm-hmm. and it's hard to it's hard to break them. Um, I'm getting better now that I talk about it so much. Um, yeah, <laughs> but yeah, and and that's what it is. It's like those psychological ideas, like you were saying, that get imprinted on us. Like it's really hard to break it. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of too, like you know, being inclusive, um, do you see a lot of change in in kind of just wording around how menstruation is discussed now um, and and being ungendered. Yes. Uh, I definitely think our language matters. I've been trying to use terms like menstrual products or period products instead of you know, feminine products or hygiene products, um, because of course that word hygiene has some negative connotations. Um, and I'm also trying to be more inclusive in my writing and others are as well. So using the word menstruator instead of women, because not all women menstruate, not all menstruators are women. Um, unless of course I'm writing about a study that is has examined women specifically, I try to just talk about menstruators. Um, And, you know, this is just such an important and understudied area. There are some studies out there um, that have looked at, you know, non-binary and transgendered experiences. um, And, you know, there are some definitely mixed attitudes toward menstruation, as we might expect. And um, in one study that I'm thinking about recently, that was... um, Joan, Joan Chrysler and her colleagues, they uh, asked uh, transgendered participants about their attitudes toward menstruation. And, you know, something that comes up is feeling fear and anxiety about using the restroom while menstruating, um, you know, is one of their, their findings. And um, I think this community needs to be included more in these conversations about menstrual health. And um, I think they are. And uh, I think people are making a lot of uh, great efforts to do this. And um, again, it's something we need to keep in mind when we're talking about trying to be more period positive, uh, because there are very real reasons why menstruation may not be a positive experience for some people, right? And, you know, that needs to be validated and um, incorporated into our understanding of this issue. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, um, I'm just always so intrigued to hear everyone else's experience with getting periods because I only know my own. <laughs> um, and mm-hmm. it's it's been a really like learning journey as I'm sure with you too. Um, and seeing the changes and, and talking to people. Um, it's just all very fascinating to me. So I really appreciate you mm-hmm. talking about your experience with me as well. Um, yeah. Is, is there anything else um, in terms of your research with infertility specifically and menstruation that you wanted to discuss? Or, um, I mean, obviously periods are a part of the reproductive 
system and working. So mm-hmm. um, that right there, they're obviously linked. But if there's any other like particular thing that like in your research with periods and infertility or just infertility um, that you wanted to highlight, please. Yeah, I guess, I mean, bringing together menstruation and infertility, I think is a really interesting intersection. I, my relationship, I feel like my relationship with my period is really complex and and deep uh, because of these, my experience with infertility. Um, You know, I study and teach about attitudes toward menstruation. And so I, you know, I feel very strongly about the need to destigmatize destigmatize menstruation and not see it as a disease that's in need of treatment. Um, At the same time, Mm -hmm. I have illnesses related to the menstrual cycle that have symptoms that are really difficult to manage and cope with. And those illnesses, like I said before, contributed to my experience with infertility. And that just really complicates my relationship with my period. You know, when you're experiencing infertility, um, the period is this monthly, really can be devastating reminder that I couldn't have children and may never have children. Um, you know, I didn't know at the time how how the story would end. Um, and so I'd, I'd like to see more research on that, on the ways in which women with infertility experience menstruation and, you know, how that can be can be a really complex experience. Um, but yeah. Yeah. No, I, I was just like, um, I, I have a daughter. And so, um, and I just had um, an ectopic pregnancy a few months ago. And so, um, and like, again, my period before when I was adolescent and, and into my early 20s was um, mm-hmm. terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just, when I was bleeding from the ectopic, I actually just assumed it was my terrible period back, which is like, it wasn't. Um, and so I, I do like, I realize I, I didn't, didn't, I'm not, uh, I have not dealt with infertility specifically, but I know that like sinking feeling when you get your period and I can only imagine how much harder it is to, to feel that when you've been fighting against it for mm-hmm. so long. Um, yeah. So it, I'm sure it beats people mm-hmm. down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a reminder. And, you know, it comes often. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, the hope is it comes often. I mean, just right. like on a health basis, but right, right, right. So for with your endometriosis, I'm assuming it was just absolutely painful for you every time it came before you had all the surgeries. Yes, painful and heavy bleeding that lasted for a very long time. Um, And again, as an adolescent, you know, I didn't, I was just like, oh, periods last 12, 14 days. That's interesting. But then I started realizing that like other people weren't having that experience. Um, So, so yeah, it was, it was pain and, and um, the, the bleeding symptoms as well. And um, the surgeries, um, and the treatments, I think, helped with my pain, um, but it's a little hard to tell how much it helped and how much I just ke- became better at coping with the pain. Um, it's hard to un- it's hard to know that when just looking back on it. Um, but those were the primary symptoms that I had experienced were the uh, pain and the the heavy and prolonged bleeding. Yeah, um, and so now. Um you've had kids, you've had these surgeries, and is, have you seen a change with your menstruation? 
Yes, uh, menstruation has changed a lot post uh, birth. And I'm not exactly, you know, there could be a lot of factors involved in that. So I'm not sure. But um, I, my symptoms are very well controlled now. Um, the doctor that I'm seeing right now has been just really helpful and um, amazing. And so I, you know, don't have to miss work and mm-hmm. I can do things for more than 20 minutes at a time uh, when I have my period now because uh, my symptoms are managed a lot better. But uh, yeah, it's interesting how it can change just when you think you have everything <laughs> under control and everything's predictable, then you have a life event that changes your body. <laughs> so anyway. Yeah. Yeah. It, it changes a lot about your body. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, yeah, it, it is one of those. Um, I always find it fascinating how you, it grows and changes with you. And, um, and it is the thing too, where you were saying earlier about like, Oh, how much of it is me just coping with it and how much, um, well, in your case is everything else, but it, it is, a wonder if it's like, oh, I'm, I've just gotten used to it because of this like weird psychological thing that still hits me up when it comes. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, I've, I've learned to deal with whatever it is, but mine, mine has changed now too. Um, and I just, I'm always intrigued, um, or I'm just fascinated how the body works and how it's just kind of like such a cool mechanism. <laughs> Sound like, uh-huh. like, like like a ten year old like it's a cool it's magical thing. Um, so, do you have um, a preferred menstruation product that you use, person? I use pads. Oh yeah, I have yes, I have an aversion to tampons, which you know I feel like I should be over by now, but I'm not since that's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I use pads and, um, and I also use period underwear on my lighter days. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I want to try the period underwear. Is it, do you use the thinks or is there a different part, brand that you use? Yeah, they're thinks and uh, I just, they're just great for the, the lighter days for me. Like because of my heavy bleeding, I just, I'm not sure if other ones can handle it or not. I guess I could experiment, but um, I prefer it, you know, for the lighter days where it's a little bit more predictable and, or for the days where I don't know, like I could get my period today, but I'm not sure. So let's just wear these. It's so much Mm. nicer than just like wearing um, a panty liner or whatever. Uh, So yeah. Yeah. Uh, And then finally, just to kind of wrap it up, um, do you have any advice or like, you know, for people who are just starting to go through it, just getting their period um, that you would give to them or anything that you would have told yourself when you were starting to get, go through it? Yeah, that my advice would be to talk to people about it and not be afraid to talk to people about it and always, um, you know, go see a doctor regularly and have conversations with your doctor about your cycle and, you know, keep track of it. Like I said, treat it like any other aspect of your health and um, track it and not just paying attention to negative things, but um, also potentially positive things. Like, do you have more energy today? Are you better able to concentrate today? You know, do you see any patterns with anything? Um And, uh, yeah, I just, you know, I think 
I guess it's difficult to make this recommendation given the our healthcare system, but and you know lack of access to uh, insurance or um, providers sometimes. But um, if people have the opportunity to talk with their doc- doctors, I think that can be really helpful in just getting more information about what the normal range is because. Like I said before, because we have this negative um, talk around menstruation that happens a lot in our culture, and that's like what's normalized is to talk about it negatively, um, is that that's the kind of information that you might get from just talking about it with friends, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But I think the more you can uh, talk about it with um, healthcare providers, it can help you maybe connect and get support if you need it um, sooner rather than later. Um, but, yeah, ab- yeah, absolutely. Um, and just like if, if there's any organizations or websites or even like magazines or, you know, articles, um, anything that you might suggest people can look at or anything you want to promote if you have anything <laughs> by all yeah. means. Sure. So I definitely want to make sure people know about the Society for Menstrual Cycle Research. So it's an international organization that works on bringing together uh, researchers and activists and health professionals who care very deeply about the menstrual cycle and um, research surrounding it. And so um, I'm not sure when this podcast will be uh, published, but uh, June 6th through 8th is our conference in Colorado Springs, and um, it happens every two years. And uh, the Society for Menstrual Cycle Research also has a journal called Women's Reproductive Health, and that's a great place to go for research, not just on the menstrual cycle, but research on uh, reproductive health in general, too. Um, And I also would like people to know about um, a new uh, online community for people with endometriosis called endometriosis.net. I'm a contributor for that um, site, and they are powered by Health Union, which is a company based in Philadelphia, and they have different um, online communities for people with various illnesses or chronic illnesses. And so this one just uh, opened up in August and it's a great place to go for more information and resources and support for endometriosis. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. This was really informative and I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me and for having this podcast and just doing this. Thanks for listening. That's My Story Period is edited by Veronica Gruba and hosted by Campfire Media. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to get in touch with the show, email periodpodcaststories at gmail.com.